thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and welcome to this uh, study on the angels. Tonight, uh, we're going to spend some time um, acquainting ourselves with uh, a great saint, Saint Raphael. How many of you have a devotion to Saint Raphael? Not surprised. How many of you know Saint Raphael? You know what he does? I mean, how many of you know more than just the name St. Raphael? Yes, um, St. Raphael is one of the three archangels. <clears throat> Not, I don't imply by that there are only three archangels, but those are the three archangels that have uh, revealed their names uh, to us and themselves. And we're going to follow him in the book of Tobit. The book of Tobit is a very short book. It's nine pages long in my Bible. And it is right after the book of Nehemiah. And right before uh, the book of Judith. I think it's appropriate to spend some time studying this book because in it much is revealed about the way the angels help us and in particular about Saint Raphael. So let's then start this book. The book of the Acts of Tobit, the son of Tobiel, son of Ananiel, son of Aduel, son of Gabael, of the descendants of Asiel and the tribe of Naphtali, who in the days of Shalman. Shalmaneser, king of the Assyrians, was taken into captivity from um, Thisbe, which is to the south of Kedesh, Naphtali, in Galilee, ab above uh, Asher. So here he is an Israelite. He's not a Judean. This is the first uh, captivity, the captivity of the Israelites who were taken away from their kingdom around the year 700 in the, in the 8th century and 780 actually, and out up into Assyria. So he's in, in exile, away from his homeland, away from his village, living among strangers. I, Tobit, walked in the ways of truth and righteousness all the days of my life, and I performed many acts of charity to my brethren and countrymen who went with me into the land of the Assyrians to Nineveh. Now, when I was in my own country, in the land of Israel, which I was still a young, while I was still a young man, the whole tribe of Naphtali, my forefather, deserted the house of Jerusalem. Those of you who have been with us for quite some time, you know what he's talking about. After the break between the two kingdoms, after the break of the kingdom of uh, David, the death, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of David got broken into two parts. The southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah, 
and the northern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Israel. And shortly thereafter, the northern kingdom decided that they will not go worship in Jerusalem anymore. They will instead worship on Mount Gerizim. And so they built a different temple. And the result of that uh, action on their part was the triggering of the covenantal curse and the Assyrians coming down on them eventually, sort of uh, 250 years later, and they're being shipped into exile. If you don't know what I'm talking about and you're hearing me talking about a curse, uh, talk to Michael. Michael. There is a series on the covenant and a series on the covenantal curses which I strongly recommend you get because it's essential to our understanding of the book of Revelation. Without it, you're going to be um, wondering what the book is all about. So please get those tapes and listen to them. So what he's saying is that all his people deserted the, the temple. Now, of course, all doesn't mean that if there were a hundred of them, 99 deserted and he alone stood. He really means many, the majority, a big number. So if you walked in, in, uh, in, in, uh, among the tribe of Naphtali back then, the majority would be uh, worshipping among Gerizim and only a minority would be still going down to Jerusalem. All right? So his point here is that he was still faithful to the Lord and yet he found himself among the exiles up in Assyria. All the tribes that joined in apostasy used the sacrifice to the calf, Baal, and so did the house of Naphtali, my forefather. But I alone went often to Jerusalem for the feasts, as it is ordained for all Israel by an everlasting decree. That's the covenant. Taking the first fruits and the tithe. Remember the Feast of the First Fruits. Again, if you're not with us, there's a whole series on the calendar, Jewish calendar and the feasts around the temple. Um, and so basically his point is that he was faithful to God and his commandment and the law. When I was carried away, verse 10, captive to Nineveh, all my brethren and my relatives ate the food of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means that they had no qualm eating food that is defiled. Food they were not supposed to eat. Remember, eating food of the Gentiles, to us it sounds kind of strange. I mean, what's the big deal? If a guy in a Syrian cooked some bread and offered you the bread, why would you eat it? But that's not what is meant. When they say eating food of the Gentile, what is meant behind it is all the sacrificial system of the Assyrians. Because the Assyrians also offered sacrifices. And th that food was also eaten. So essentially, they had no problem partaking into food which was offered to false gods. That's the implication. So don't take it too literally to mean, oh, well, you know, they gave me a pot of yogurt and I just ate it. What's the, no, it's, it's the whole implication behind it which is religious. And that is they've participated or they willingly or closed their eyes and ate some food offered to a false god. But I kept myself from eating it because I remembered God with all my heart. Remembrance here doesn't mean Oh, you know, I thought about God. Remembrance here is anamnesis, the same way when Jesus says, do this in memory or remembrance of me. Anamnesis is the, uh, the opposite of amnesia. All right? Amnesia is 
to forget and amnesia is to make suddenly present. Right? So effectively what he's saying is that he was being faithful to God's commandments. Even though the temple was nowhere to be seen, he couldn't sacrifice at the temple, yet he lived according to the commandments of God. Then the Most High gave me favor and good appearance in the sight of uh, Shalman Nasser, and I was his buyer of provisions. So I used to go into Midia, and, and once at Ragus in Midia, I left ten talents of silver in trust with Gabael, the brother of Gabrias. But when Shalmaneser died, Sennacherib, his son, reigned in his place, and under him the highways were unsafe, so that I could no longer go into Midia. In the days of Shalmaneser, I performed many acts of charity to my brethren. I would give my bread to the hungry and my clothing to the naked. And I saw, and if I saw any one of my people dead and thrown out behind the wall of Nineveh, I would bury him. So back then, them being refugees coming from a different country, living in Assyria, their life was cheap. And any one of them who got killed ended up being thrown outside the walls without proper burial. And it, and, and it was dangerous for someone to go out and then bury them. So imagine the, the life of Tobit being exiled, taken prisoner, a second-class citizen, being faithful to the law of God among his brethren, who most of them are not, and who make, who's making fun of him. If you really meditate on the situation that he is in, I think you can appreciate more what is going in this book. If you've had hardships, if you feel that you're out of place, you're a misfit, you're trying to live your faith and people don't really care, you're trying to be faithful at work, at home, in your, uh, in your relationships, and it seems as if no one is noticing, think of him. And go back and read this and try to really imagine what his life was like. It wasn't an easy life. He had a choice. He could have dropped all this and made him, his life really easy. The choice was his. He remained faithful, even though, even though the Lord allowed his country to be utterly destroyed. You need to understand when the Assyrians took down on Israel, they left nothing. Nothing was left standing. Not only that, but the Assyrians was really, really good about forcing communities of different ethnic background to intermarry. They mixed the whole group to a point where the ten tribes of Israel were not recognizable anymore. So it was really hard on these people. It was not easy. And here he is risking his life to bury the dead. Think about that. He's risking his life to bury the dead. I would bury him and if and if Sennacherib the king put to death any who came fle uh, fleeing from Judea, I buried them secretly, for in his anger he put many to death. When the bodies were sought by the king, they were not found. Then one of the men of Nineveh went and informed the king about me that I was burying them, so I hid myself. When I learned that I was being searched for to be put to death, I left home in fear. And all my property was confiscated. Nothing was left to me except my wife Anna and my son Tobias. On account of his work of righteousness, he lost everything. You need to start to see a change in this. The reason why this book is also important is because there is a change in the understanding of suffering. Because in the classical or Old Testament understanding of suffering, suffering is the result of sinfulness. And here we have a man who is righteous and who is suffering. Very much like Job. They share that in common.
Alright? And the more he tries to be righteous, the greater his sufferings. He's basically, everything's taken away from him. His life is, he's threatened with, with um, a sentence of death. His goods and belongings are taken away from him. And all he's got left is his wife and his son. It gets better. But not 50 days passed before two of Sennacherib's sons killed him, and they fled to the mountains of Ararat. Then Esar Hagon, his son, reigned in his place, and he appointed Ahikar, the son of my brother, over all the accounts of his kingdom and over the entire administration. Ahikar interceded for me, and I returned to Nineveh. Now Ahikar was cupbearer, keeper of the signet, and in charge of administration of the accounts of, for um, Esar Hadon. For Esar Hadon has appointed him second to himself. He was my nephew. And so he comes back, and notice what he does. There's a lot of food available to him, verse 2 of chapter 2. Upon seeing the abundance of food, I said to my son, Go and bring whatever poor man of our brethren you may find, who is mindful of the Lord, and I will wait for you. But he came back and said, Father, one of our people has been strangled and thrown into the marketplace. So before I tasted anything, I sprang up and removed the body to a place of shelter until sunset. And when I returned, I washed myself and ate my food in sorrow. Then I remembered the prophecy of Amos, how he said, Your feast shall be turned into mourning, and all your festivities into lamentation. And I wept. Amos was a prophet sent to the northern kingdom to warn them that unless you go back to the Lord, unless you repent and you go back to the Lord, this is going to befall you. The curses of the covenant are going to be triggered, and that's going to ha happen to you. And the key here is to notice how to, um, Tobiah is living his life according to the covenant. When something like this happens to him, Scripture comes to mind. And he interprets the event of his life in the light of the prophecies. This is key for all of us absolutely key if you want to find peace in your life and I mean peace of heart in the middle of sorrow even when you're sorrowful even when you're in, a, in gripped by sorrow because of some events that are taking place if you remember the word of the Lord and if you can understand the events of your life in light of his word you'll fight peace and consolation you must be trained in scripture in order to live scripturally. And if you don't live scripturally, how is your life different from anybody out there? When the son had said, I went and dug a grave and buried the body, and my neighbor laughed at me and said, he's no longer afraid that he would be put to death for doing this. He once ran away, and here is burying the dead again. On the same night, I returned from burying him, and because I was defied, I slept by the wall of the courtyard, and my face was uncovered. I did not know that there were sparrows on the wall and their fresh droppings fell into my open eyes and white films formed my eyes. I went to physicians, but they did not help me. Ahikar, however, took care of me until he went to Elimais. Then my wife Anna earned money at woman's work. She used to send the product to her owners. Once when she, they paid her wages, they also gave her a kid. And when she returned to me, it began to bleed. So I said to her, where did you get the kid? It is not stolen, is it? Return it to the owners, for it is not right to eat what is stolen. And she said, it was given to me as a gift in addition to my wages. But I did not believe her and told her to return it to the owners. And I blushed for her. Then she replied to me, where are your charities and your righteous deeds? You seem to know everything. So notice how unabashedly honest he is. He's not trying to, look, to make himself look good. He's not trying to make himself look bad. 
he's basically detailing what is going through his life at that moment. The good thing he does and the, and the things that are not as good. He's a fundamentally human being. He's not a hero. Things that he does are very, very good, but he still has his defects. As expressed, he didn't trust his wife. He thought she stole and she lied on top of stealing. And this is no small accusation here. And she tells him, you seem to know everything. So she's pointing at a certain arrogance that he has. Then in my grief I wept and I prayed in anguish, saying, Righte Righteous art thou, O Lord, all thy deeds and all thy ways are mercy and truth, and thou dost render true and righteous judgment forever. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Listen carefully to what he says. Righteous art thou, O Lord, all thy deeds and all thy ways are mercy and truth, and thou dost render true and righteous judgment forever. These words are not coming from a king who's just been enthroned. These words are not coming from a guy who has millions. These words are coming from someone who is in exile, whose life been threatened, who lost everything once, who could lose it again, and who has now a problem with his eyes. And he's not complaining. Righteous art thou, O Lord, in all your ways and all your deeds. He recognizes the righteousness of God. He acknowledges it even though he doesn't understand it. But he acknowledges God's righteousness in all things. This is fundamentally the religious attitude. This is the virtue of religion. Right there, exercised before your eyes. The virtue of religion is exercised when in the face of events we do not understand or comprehend, in the face of difficulties and big difficulties, we still say, Righteous art thou, O Lord, in all your ways. We still acknowledge God's righteousness, His justice. We still acknowledge that we do not understand all that He does, but that in the end, everything, everything is to the greater glory of God, even when we don't see it. And then, remember me and look favorably upon me. Do not punish me for my sins and for my unwitting offenses and those which my fathers committed before thee. For they disobeyed thy commandments, and thou gavest, gavest us over to plunder, captivity, and death. Thou made, made us a byword of reproach in all the nations among which we have been dispersed. You notice how he takes upon himself, not just his sins, but the sins of his fathers. He recognizes not just his sins. As Americans, there is always this unrelenting tendency to think that all that matters is me and Jesus. And my faith is just about me and Jesus. Nobody else. That my life cannot be touched by the sins of my fathers, or my life cannot be graced by the intercession of my forefathers who are saints in heaven. They're completely out of the picture. It's just Jesus and me. How heretical. How wrong. To begin with, it can never be just Jesus and me. It better be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And certainly not just me. Because we're family. And he understands that. He doesn't see the events of his life couched in terms of his actions. 
what he did or he didn't do. There's a lot more to it than that. There's what others have done before him. And if this was not true, then the death of Christ on the cross makes absolutely no sense. Christ came and assumed our humanity. And when he assumed our humanity, he made himself one of us. And took on all our sins. Why? Because we're family. That's why. For we did not walk in truth before thee. And now deal with me according to thy pleasure. Command my spirit to be taken up, that I may depart and become dust. For it is better for me to die than to live, because I have heard false reproaches, and great is the sorrow within me. Command that I now be released from my distress, to go to the eternal abode. Do not turn thy face away from me. Notice, abandonment to the will of God. First, he recognizes God's glory. Second, he makes his petition. Do not forget me, remember me, like the... the the thief on the cross. And then third, he makes, specifically, he says, I'm ready to go. I'm done. You see how direct the prayer is? That's how, how a prayer should be. First, the recognition of God's glory. First. Second, our petition. Clear, direct, succinct. Third, completely entrusting ourselves to God. That's a model of prayer. It's accessory prayer. This is a model of it. On the same day, at Ekbata, at Ekbatana in Midia, it also happened that Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, was reproached by her father's maids because she had been given to seven husbands and the evil demon Asmodeus had slain each of them before he had been with her and his wife. Here's this poor girl. She's been given to seven husbands and each one of them died, killed by a demon, Asmodeus by name who would not let them get close to her. Talk about being stuck. Okay, so we have here a case, a form of possession, where a demon is not allowing these men to get close to her. So the maid said to her, Do you know that you strangle your husbands? You already have had seven and have had no benefit from any of them. Why do you beat us? If they are dead, go with them. May we never see a son or daughter of yours. They're getting a little bit tired. Seven men got strangled. Now you understand when a possession, when a, when a person is possessed, what the, what the demon does is that he, they possesses the body, not the soul. Right, so they, essentially they take, they take over the functions of the body. And most people who are possessed do not recall what happened because they have not done it. All right? They're not guilty of it because they have not will to do it. They didn't even know they were doing it. All right? Just keep that, this is important, otherwise you kind of wonder, why isn't she guilty? When she heard these things, she was deeply grieved, even to the thought of hanging herself. So she was driven almost to the point of suicide. But she said, I am the only child of my father. If I do this, it will be disgrace to him, and I shall bring his old age down in sorrow to the grave. So she prayed by her window and said, Blessed art thou, O Lord my God, and blessed is thy holy and honored name forever. May all thy works praise thee forever. And now, O Lord, I have turned my eyes and my face toward thee. Command that I be released from the earth, and that I hear reproach no more. Thou knowest, O Lord, that I am innocent of my sin with, with man, and that I did not stain my name on the, or the name of my father in the land of my captivity. I am my father's only child, and he has no child to be his heir, no near kinsman no, or kinsman's sons for whom I should keep myself as wife. Already seven husbands of mine are dead. Why should I live? 
But if it be not pleasing to thee to take my life, command that respect be shown to me and pity be taken upon me and that I hear reproach no more. Again, direct prayer. Here's a person who's possessed. And look what the possession did to her. It deepened her faith. It deepened her faith. So again, she acknowledged God first. Then she made her petition direct and straight. And then again, she abandoned herself to God's will. Alright? Here we have two people in the midst of their sorrow who approach God directly. And now we have the following. The prayer of both was heard in the presence of the glory of the great God and Raphael was sent to heal the two of them, to scale away the white films from Tobit's eyes, to give Sarah the daughter of Raguel in marriage to Tobias, the son of Tobit, and to bind Asmodeus, the evil demon, because Tobias was entitled to possess her. At that very moment, Tobit returned and entered his house, and Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, came down from her upper room. So their prayer was heard, and we have the agency of an angel, Raphael, who's going to be sent to both of them. On that day, Tobit remembered the money which he had left in trust with Gebael at Ragus in Media, and he said to himself, I have asked for death. Why do I not call my son Tobias so that I may explain to him about the money before I die? Here is the intercession of the angel beginning at work. It turns his mind away from despair and starts focusing it on something positive. However, it doesn't work in vacuum. It is relying on the fact that Tobit loves his son. And likewise, Rachel loves her father. It's that love which they fostered that allowed the angel to work on them. And so he suggests, the suggestion is brought to him, why don't you tell your son about the money? And he said to him, my son, when I die, bury me and do not neglect your mother. Honor her all the days of your life. Do what is pleasing to her and do not grieve her. Remember, my son, that she faced many dangers for you while you were yet unborn. When she dies, bury her beside me in the same grave. Remember the Lord our God all your days, my son, and refuse to sin or to transgress his commandments. Live uprightly all the days of your life and do not walk in the ways of wrongdoing. For if you do what is true, your ways will prosper through your deeds. Give alms from your possession to all who live uprightly and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Do not turn your face away from any poor man and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gifts from them in proportion. If you do not be afraid to give according to the little you have, so you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For charity delivers from death and keeps you from entering the darkness. And for all who practice it, charity is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. This, we find echoes of this in the Beatitudes. We find echoes of this in the Sermon on the Mountain. We found echoes of this in the teaching of St. Peter and the teaching of St. Paul. This is a very good short summary of a Christian life. I don't have time to comment on it, but I'm just pointing that out to you. Chapter 5. Then Tobias answered him, Father, I will do everything that you have commanded me, but how can I obtain the money when I do not know the man? And Tobit gave him the receipt and said to him, Find a man to go with you, and I will pay him wages as long as I live, and go and get the money. So he went to look for a man, and he found Raphael, who was an angel, but Tobias did not know it. Tobias said to him, Can you go with me to Ragus in Midia? Are you acquainted with that region? The angel replied, I will go with you. I'm familiar with the way, and I have stayed with our brother Gebael. And Tobias said to him, Wait for me, and I shall tell my father. And he said to him, Go and do not delay. So he went in and said to his father, I have found someone to go with me. He said, Call him to me, so I may learn 
to what tribe he belongs and whether he's a reliable man to go with you. So Tobias invited him in, and he, he entered, and they greeted each other. Then Tobit said to him, My brother, to what tribe and family do you belong? Tell me. But he answered, Are you looking for a tribe and a family, or for a man whom you will pay to go with your son? And Tobit said to him, I should like to know my brother, your people, and your name. He replied, I am Azarias, the son of the great Ananias, one of your relatives. Then Tobit said to him, You are welcome, my brother. Do not be angry with me, because I tried to learn your tribe and family. You are a relative of mine, of a good and noble lineage. For I used to know Ananias and Jothan, the sons of the great Shemael, when we went together to Jerusalem to worship and offered the firstborn of our flocks and the tithe of our produce. Here the angel effectively is committing a white lie. Right? He's not the son of that man. He's not the son of that man. But you, you need to understand the intention and the goal behind it. What is, what is uh, Tobias wants for his son? He wants a man who can, who, whom he can trust. A reliable man. A man, essentially, of his own people. Well, Raphael fulfilled all those conditions. So therefore, that white lie is acceptable. So they, then he tells his son to get ready for the journey and to go with the man... And then, <clears throat> chapter 6, they went on their way. So notice now, Raphael, as an angel, is walking with the sun. He's not walking with the sun on account of the merits of the sun. Alright? He's doing it on account of the merits of the father and Rachel. You see how the family works? Those prayers are heard. The son is the recipient of that prayer. So they proceed on their way. Then the young man went down to wash himself. A fish le leapt up from the river and would have swallowed the young man. And the angel said to him, catch the fish. So the young man seized the fish and threw it up on the land. Then the angel said to him, cut open the fish and take the heart and liver and gall and put them away safely. So the young man did as the angel told him and they roasted and ate the fish. This is another thing that angels do. They suggest actions on our part. They are suggesting to us things we should be doing. Most of the time, we're not trained to hear their voice. Because we're not devoted to them. We don't show actively our devotion by prayers. And we don't mean to be really devoted to them. It takes a lot of training on our part to be devoted to our God and angel. But just as Tobit... Uh, Raphael here is talking to Tobias, uh, to Tobit, I'm sorry, Our, your guardian angel is talking to you. Many times when a good suggestion comes to your mind, oh, I should call my mother. Often you attribute that to yourself and to your own goodness. What a mistake. You can never be sure of your own goodness because you don't know your heart. Who knows his heart? Only the Holy Spirit can search the heart of man. We don't know our heart. But you can be sure that your guardian angel is constantly reminding you of things to do of good things. Don't forget, you said to your wife, you're going to get that broccoli. Get the broccoli. Yeah, I'll do it later. Remember, you need to get the broccoli. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it later. You reply this way, the angel understands you, don't want, you, you, don't, you do not want to be reminded, so in his humility, he's not going to pester you. He stops. And then you get home and you go, I forgot the broccoli. Well, it isn't like they, they, you, you weren't reminded of it. But because of our own tendencies and propensity of not doing what is right, not serving others, especially when 
you don't feel like eating broccoli, but your wife really wants the broccoli, but you don't feel like eating broccoli. So of course there's going to be 22 other things that come before the broccoli. But he's constantly reminding, giving suggestions, and especially in areas where we are not comfortable. I mean, Tobit, for all we know, is not a fisherman. Fish came out of the water, on his own he probably would have left it. It's not an area of comfort for him. And here's the angel guiding him into doing something he's not comfortable with. I'll take questions at the end if you don't mind. So, your mother-in-law is coming to visit. You've been upset with her for the past 20 years over the wedding cake. And you're living in a comfortable silence. You don't talk about that wedding cake. She gives you advice, you ignore, you ignore her. But you're polite. And from time to time there's something tugging at you to say a good word, to try something different. Unless we are able to abandon ourselves to our holy garden angel and really follow his direction, we are not going to be able to grow in charity because we train ourselves to be my way and not anybody else's way. That's why it's so important to do like Toby did. He did exactly like the angel told him. Although he didn't understand why you should take the gall and the heart and, you know, fish, they stink when you open them up. It's not a pleasant exercise. But he did it. He did it. So next time your mother-in-law is coming to visit, think about that fish. Can't be that bad. So he did, he did that. And they both continued on their way until they came near to Ekbatana. Ek, Ek then the young man said to the angel, Brother Azarias, of what use is the liver and heart and gall of the fish? He replied, as for the heart and the liver, if a demon or evil spirit gives trouble to anyone, you make a smoke from these before the man or woman, and that person will never be troubled again. And as for the gall, anoint, anoint with it a man who has white films in his eyes, and he will be cured. Now he may could understand the business of the white eyes, but what is this business of the demon? Notice how the angel is preparing him for what he has to do. So, but, but I mean, okay, how many of you walk around with that sort of stuff so in case you met a demon, you kind of, I mean, he's going to get some money, right, owed to his dad by this man. What's up with this demon business? He didn't tell him everything. He just told him a little bit. When they approached Ekbatana, the angel said to the young man, Brother, today we shall stay with Raguel. He's your relative and he has an only daughter named Sarah. Yeah, I said Rachel. It's Sarah. I'm sorry. I will suggest that she be given to you in marriage because you're entitled to her and to her inheritance for you are her only eligible kinsman. The girl is also beautiful and sensible. Now listen to my plan. I will speak to her father and as soon as we return from Ragus, we will celebrate the marriage. For I know that Ragus, according to the law of Moses, cannot give her to another man without incurring the penalty of death because you, rather than any other man, are entitled to the inheritance. Okay? He is, according to the law of Moses, based on the relationship, he's the next one in line. Okay? So notice how Raphael is arranging his affairs. He's lining everything up for him. That's why St. Raphael is known in case people have traveled, in case people are far, you want them to come back, in case you've lost something, in case you need money. Entrust your business to St. Raphael. Say that novena for nine days. 
and trust in Him. He's very, very powerful. I assure you, He's very powerful. Now here's the deal. Then the young man said to the angel, Brother Azarias, I have heard that the girl has been given to seven husbands and then each died in the bridal chamber. Now I am the only son my father has. And I'm afraid that if I go in, I will die as those before me did, for a demon is in love with her, and he harms no one except those who approach her. So now I fear that I may die and bring the lives of my father and mother to the grave in sorrow on my account, and they have no other son to, bur to bury them. Okay, by the way, the business of demon in love with her, that doesn't mean what it sounds like. Demons love nobody, but just hate us with passion. Okay? Don't take, be taken by the romantic interpretation. There is none here. Okay? What it means is that demons will not allow anyone to interfere with his possession. That's how demons are. Okay? So he's saying, you know what? I don't need this. I, I, don't, I, you know, I don't want to commit suicide. I'm not interested in this business. But the angel said to him, do you not remember the words which your father commanded you to take a wife from among your own people? Now listen to me, brother, for she will become your wife, and do not worry about the demon. For this very night she will be given to you in marriage. When you enter the bridal chamber, you shall take live ashes of incense and lay upon them some of the heart and liver of the fish so as to make a smoke. Then the demon will smell it and flee away and will never again return. And when you approach her, rise up, both of you, and cry out to the merciful God, and he will save you and have mercy on you. Do not be afraid, for she was destined to you from eternity. You will save her, and she will go with you, and I suppose that you will have children by her. So notice that I suppose that you will have children by her. Uh, angels don't know everything. They don't know the full future. They know only what God wish to reveal to them. Alright? Um, now, how many of you would be reassured? You're going to marry this woman and she's possessed. And as soon as you enter the bridal chamber, she's going to strangle you. But no fear. Take the heart and the what? And the liver. How many of you would want to take a heart and the liver in the bridal chamber? Honey, what's that? Oh, never mind. Just the heart and liver of a fish. Oh, they're fresh? No, about, you know, four years, four, two, two days old. What are you going to do with them? You got some ashes? Very romantic, isn't it? Hmm. What does that require on a, on a part of Tobit? What does it require? Faith. Where does he get the faith from? Where is he getting the faith from? You see, Gabriel, I mean, Raphael, when he speaks those words, he's not just speaking words, like I'm speaking words. As he speaks those words, he is strengthening his will. He is reminding him of the law of Moses. Notice what, what he brings up is the law of Moses. You have to be, you have to do according to the law of Moses. He strengthens his will. He affirms his resolve. He gives him the graces. He enlightens his reason and he gives him the graces he needs to do what he has to do. Otherwise, it's very funny. Yeah, take that liver and the heart and then some ashes and then burn them and the demon will flee. Right. Do, do, you, do you understand how angels work with us? When they speak to you, they may not necessarily, you may not necessarily hear the words, but your will will be affirmed. Your, your, your reason will be enlightened. 
your passions will be calmed because they're there and they're helping you, they're strengthening you just as he's doing it right now so then they, they reach Ekbatana and they're met there verse, if I, we drop down to verse 8 then Tobias said to Raphael, brother Azariah, speak of those things which you talked about on a journey and let the matter be settled so notice the angel doesn't force his, his will he still has to make that decision and he does so he communicated the proposal to Raguel, and Raguel said to Tobias, eat, drink, and be merry, for it is your right to take my child. But let me explain the true situation to you. <laughs> let me make sure you understand what you're getting into here. And he tells him she's got married seven times, etc., etc., and then Tobias said, I will eat nothing here until you make a binding agreement with me. So they make the binding agreement, and then um, Tobias goes in to, um, into the room with uh, Sarah, as he went, he remembered the words of Raphael. See how he strengthens your memory? And he's there to remind you of what has been spoken. He remembered those words. And then, and he took the live ashes of incense and put the heart and liver of fish upon them and made a smoke. And when the demon smelled the odor, he fled to the remotest parts of Egypt. And the angel bound him. So that's St. Raphael. Right? So preventing him from coming back. Now, why the liver and the smoke, why did this work this way? Uh, don't have a satisfactory explanation to give you, but there are a number of elements we can consider. Number one, the smell is particularly nasty. So that means they are, to do with them, subjecting themselves, they are effectively mortifying their senses. Right? That action is pleasing to the Lord. Next, it's an act of faith on their part. Because why would burning a liver and a heart will do anything to a demon? It takes faith. And that faith has been received. Third, the angel said that this is how it's going to be. And since he stands before the face of God, it is infallible. It is going to happen. This, this is the means by which he chose to allow them to do that while testing their faith. Right? And therefore, once this happened, the angel flees, and, and, and um, the demon flees, and, and uh, Raphael binds him. Pardon? Why to Egypt? All I can tell you is that typically what we heard from scripture is that when a demon has been taken out, as, as our Lord said in Matthew, he goes to the desert. There's this notion that they go to the desert. Why? I don't know. But if you talk to any, any hermit or anyone who goes to the desert and tries to live a life with, it's much, much harder than in a city much harder. And the angel bound him. When the door was shut and the two were alone, Tob Tobias got up from the bed and said, Sister, get up and let us pray that the Lord may have mercy upon us. And they prayed, Blessed art thou, O God, of our fathers, and blessed be thy holy and glorious name forever. Let the heavens and all the creature bless thee. Thou madest Adam and gavest him Eve, his wife, as a helper and support. From them the race of mankind has sprung. Let us say, It is not good man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him like himself. And now, O Lord, I am not taking this sister of mine because of lust, but with sincerity, grant that I may find mercy and may grow all together with her. And she said with him, Amen. Then they both went to sleep for the night. Here there is a very profound lesson about marital relationship, which is often missed in Catholic families. And that's something that, same, that uh, John Paul II taught in his in his theology of the body. 
The marital act is a prayer of the body. It's a prayer. The marital act is a prayer. It is holy. And people often tell me when I tell them that contraception is a mortal sin, and that if they are contracepting, they ought to stop. And they will say to me, well, what does that mean? Am I supposed to have another 15 kids? Well, number one, who are you to think that God is going to bless you with 15 kids? Aren't you a little bit presumptuous here? Or do you think God has nothing to do with it? You think just the two of you will make a baby? And number two, how about you pray that God bless you with every marital act? How about you proceed that moment with prayer? And to many people, prayer and sexuality are like the North and the South Pole. The two shall never meet because their sexuality is distorted. It is disordered. It is according to the fallen nature. But grace sexuality is a prayer where the man and the woman are gift to each other. Now I'll tell you, this is not something that you just say to yourself and then you do. It's an uphill battle. It is an uphill battle to be able to live our sexuality this way. And in this act, so much of who we are and the defects of our own personality show up. And it requires constant prayer on our part to purify this act. Because as, as John Paul II says, for marital couples, salvation of the marital couple goes through the sexual act. People don't understand the import of this. They think it's, you know, a little bit of high-flying gymnastics and we're done. It'd be like saying mass is high-flying gymnastics on the priest part. It's silly. There are two things we have to... There are two extremes we have to absolutely reject. Extreme number one, reducing sexuality to, as I said, gymnastics. Extreme number two is turning sexuality into something so dirty we can ever touch, we never talk about. Both of those are wrong. It is a holy act that God has instituted for the unity of the souls of the man and the woman and for procreation. Not just for procreation. First, for the unity of the souls. They're united in a mysterious bond through that act. They're gift to each other. Now, you tell me that that's what's taught at school. Why is it not taught? Because we need grace. We can't do that sort of... What I'm talking to you about makes absolutely no sense apart from the life of grace. Makes no sense. I sound completely nuts to people out there talking the way I am. But that's what the marital act is all about. That's what it means. What it's made for. We have to strive to restore this in our families and to teach it the right way. There's so much that we can say about this, I don't have time, but I thought this is again a beautiful prayer, an illustration of how a man and a woman are united, of love between them and how love can grow through prayer. So, in the meantime, Regular arose and went and dug a grave. The father-in-law, you know, he got used to it by now. He's got it down pat, you know. Get him married in the evening and then bury him in the morning. So he's got seven lined up and, you know, he's got about 150 acres. He's got enough space to fill out a whole bunch of those. He just dug a grave. Didn't even go ask. But, of course, he's surprised and pleasantly so. This guy made it, actually. 
which is some other point I want to make. Those of you who, who, are, who think that they are called to the sacrament of matrimony, who call to be married, pray right now for your spouse. She or he is outside, outwhere, out there, somewhere. God knows who this person is. God knows better than you do. And better than the computers on the internet. Not, 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 don't get me wrong. Not, there's nothing wrong in trying to meet someone or match your... That, nothing wrong with that. Right? Except that here they use computers. Back where we come from, they used parents. What? It's an... It's a, it's an you, you have organized marriage? Your parents tell you who you should marry? Never. I'll let the computer tell me. They're smarter. Point is, he or she is out there. Pray to the Lord. Lord, if, if, if you're calling me to be married, first, Lord, show me my calling. What do you want me to be? Because I'm going to be happy only in doing what you call me to be, because that's how you created me. And if I'm called to be married, I'll pray for the person I'm going to be marrying, that he or she may be protected from sin, may be now growing in grace. I'll pray for them. And I will wait on you to meet them when I'm supposed to meet them. In the meantime, I'll get ready. I'll pray. I'll learn how to pray. I'll grow in virtues. So that when I need them, I'm not a wreck. Nine. Then Tobias called Raguel and said to him, Brother Azarias, take a servant and two camels with you and go to Gabael at Ragus in Midia and get the money for me and bring him to the wedding feast. Notice. <laughs> I love this part. I love this part. Tobias is bossing Raphael around. Why don't you go and get me the money? That's why you need money, St. Raphael. He's the guy. I'm serious. You need a new car, St. Raphael. He's the guy. Provided your intentions are upright, don't ask him, St. Raphael, make me win the lotto. That's not going to happen. Well, I don't speak for him, but typically that's not the right intention. You need something, pray for him. He'll do it. Because he's humble. Saints are humble, all of them. And so he does. He goes, that's the money, come back. So then they go, they, he brings his wife and the money and the inheritance that she got and they move back to see his father. And chapter 11, after this, Tobias went on his way praising God because he had made his journey success. And he blessed Raguel and his wife Edna and so he continued on his way until they came near to Nineveh. Then Raphael said to Tobias, Are you not aware, brother, of how you left your father? Let us run ahead of your wife and prepare the house and take the gal of the fish with you. So think, see how the angels always think ahead. There was a step ahead of us. He's thinking about the father. The father has this problem with his eyes. And so he wants him to be able to see. He says, Let's go. And he does. Again, he follows his call. And they go. And when they reach this place... Verse 7, chapter 11, uh, I know, Tobias, that your father will open his eyes. You, therefore, must anoint his eyes with the gall. And when they smart, and when they smart, he will rub them and will cause the white films to fall away, and he will see you. And that's what happened. Chapter 12, Tobit then called his son, Tobias, and said to him, My son, see to the wages of the man who went with you, and he must also be given more. He replied, Father, it would do me no harm to give him half of what I brought back. For he has led me back to you safely. He cured my wife, he obtained the money for me, and he also healed you. The old man said, he deserves it. Half. You see, 
angels teach us also about being generous. Okay, you have issues with generosity. You feel you can't give. You don't give enough. You're always concerned about what you have and what you don't have. Pray to your God an angel. He'll help you with that. Then the angel called the two of them privately and said to them, Praise God and give thanks to Him. Exalt Him and give thanks to Him in the presence of all the living for what He has done for you. Notice, nothing about Him. Raphael is not talking about Him. Everything goes to, to God. Everything is directed to God. It is good to praise God and to exalt His name worthily, declaring the works of God. Do not be slow to give Him thanks. It is good to guard the secret of a king, but gloriously to reveal the works of God. Do good, and evil will not overtake you. Prayer is good when accompanied by fasting, almsgiving, and righteousness. Okay? Anytime you meet some of your um, Protestant brethren, you may wish to pull this book and then show them this. Problem is that they don't have that book. And then they might get in a conversation of, well, where do you got that book from? We don't have it. Well, why did you take it out? No, I mean, don't argue. But try to explain to them. Right? Try to explain why this book is here. A little with righteousness is better than much with wrongdoing. It is better to give alms than to treasure up gold. For almsgiving delivers from death, and it will purge away every sin. Those who perform deeds of charity and of righteousness will have fullness of life. But those who commit sin are the enemies of their own lives. I will not conceal anything from you. I have said it is good to guard the secret of king, but gloriously to reveal the work of God. And so when you and your daughter-in-law Sarah prayed, I brought, I, 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 Raphael, brought a reminder of your prayer before the Holy One. Their prayer did not go straight to God. See why I don't pray directly to God? Because in order for me to be able to pray directly to God, I better be worthy to show myself before the face of the king. And who can claim that? Who can claim that? Raphael can. So their prayer went to God, but nothing happened. I brought a reminder of your prayer before God. He went and interceded for them on their behalf before God. And then the prayer was granted. And then the prayer was granted. So if you're praying for something, and in your heart, you have a sense that this is the right thing to pray for, nothing is happening, then get a clue. The reason why nothing is happening is because the right person is not yet interceding for this. God wants someone to pray for this. And when that person prays, then it will be granted. We have an innate pride that we think we can just pray directly to God and He's going to hear us and do everything we ask Him to do. It doesn't work this way. Because if He did, He'll be effectively doing us harm. He will be treating us like we would treat a, um, a um, spoiled kid. How do you spoil a kid? You give him everything he asks for. He gets spoiled. Does he get better? No. So imagine if every time I prayed, God gave me what I want. And you knew about it. What do you think this is going to turn me into? A monster. Unless someone has been completely seeped in charity and he understands that the only thing that is worth having is God himself none of his gifts just him and we call this person a saint in which case it does him no harm if God answers his prayers unless one reached that kind of union 
of soul with God, answered prayers is dangerous because it pumps us up. Oh, ho, look, I got results. I'm a saint. You understand? So when God doesn't answer your prayer, understand that He is giving you heavenly fathering. He's worried about your soul more about what you're asking for. I brought a reminder of your prayer before the Holy One, and when you buried the dead, I was likewise present with you. See, you're never alone in a good deed. Never. Your God and angel is always with you. When you did not hesitate to rise and leave your dinner in order to go and lay out the dead, your good deed was not hidden from me, but I was with you. So now God sent me to heal you and your daughter-in-law Sarah. I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory of the Holy One. They present the prayers of the saints. That's the role. That's the role. That's what they do. And here we are. No, 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 no. I can just talk to Jesus directly. I got the red phone. Pick up. 1-800. Jesus direct. Hello? Whoa. Of course, the reaction of them is the normal reaction. They were both alarmed and they fell upon their faces. For they were afraid. But he said to them, do not be afraid. You will be safe. But praise God for it. Why do you say you will, you will be safe? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of dying. They saw the holy angel of God and fear of death enters their heart. That's what happens to a holy person. When they are confronted with that which is really holy, you see, St. John of the Cross describes it this way. When God shines his light on your soul. So let's say your soul has a window. It's a room and there's a window. And right now, it's kind of cloudy. So you're looking at the walls and you're looking at the floor and everything looks tidy and neat and clean. And suddenly, the clouds part away and the bright sun shines through the window. Now, if you look at the sun, what do you see? Nothing. Do you see anything? Nothing. That's why St. John calls it the dark night of the soul. Because you're looking at nothing. You can't see a thing. But if you look at your room, what do you see? You see the dust floating in the air. You see every nook and cranny. You see every speck of dust. Suddenly, the room looks pretty dirty, doesn't it? Because the bright light of the sun shone on it. So, are you now better off or worse? In one sense, in an objective sense, you're much better off. But subjectively, meaning how you feel, it's terrible. You feel you made 400,000 steps backward. You're so far away from God. You see? And that's what happens when you are faced with, with that which is holy. It reflects on you. You see yourself as you really are, and then you say, how can I stand in front of him? And you fall on your face. That's a truly religious experience. There's actually a Muslim uh, cab in New York who was driving a bishop to a church. And he stopped in front of the church, and they were talking. He knew he was a bishop, and he knew he was Muslim. And they were debating. And then when he stopped, the Muslim uh, cab said to the bishop, so you're telling me, right here, inside the church, there's God. Almighty. And the bishop said, yep, I don't believe it. 
Why? Why? Because if I knew that God Almighty was there, I would get down and I would lick, I would lick the ground stunning from those stairs all the way through. I would lick it. Because God is there. In other words, the reason why he doesn't believe is because we don't show it. Somebody said in California, the poor, when they go to Mass, put on their best clothes. The middle class go to Mass as if they're going to the beach. And the rich go to Mass as if they're coming back from the beach. Flip-flops, tight clothes, short sleeves, short um, shorts, shorts, short skirts, tight skirts. No idea in whose presence we are. None. Ask yourself a simple question. If the Queen of England was coming tonight, would you show up in flip-flops to greet her? Would you? Would you show up in flip-flops and t-shirt, chewing gum, to greet her? Would you? Think about that. Think how your life reflects what you really believe in. Therefore, praising forever all these days, I merely appeared to you and did not eat or drink, but you were seeing a vision. And now give thanks to God, for I am ascending to him who sent me, write in a book everything that has happened. Then they stood up, but they saw him no more. So they confessed the great and wonderful works, works of God, and acknowledged that the angel of the Lord has appeared to them. And chapter 13 is left for you to read. It's a beautiful prayer, again, where they're exalting God and giving him glory. This is St. Raphael. This is St. Raphael. He is the same as he was back then. If you're praying sincerely, if you're applying yourself to grow in your love of God, if you're trying to live the virtues, if you're trying to examine your conscience every evening, if you're going to confession regularly, if you're trying to be really, truly Catholics, He's hearing you. Say that novena. Learn to be devoted to Him. And see what He will do in your life. One last word. Before... Before the new covenant, the angels stood before God and presented their petition directly before the Trinity. Since then, they go through Our Lady. You want, to, you want to please Our Lady? You love her, you say? You say her rosary? Be devoted to her angels. They are her angels. It's her glorious title. The second most glorious title of Our Lady, after being Mother of God, is to be Queen of Angels. How could a human being become the queen of these spirits? Is astounding. Absolutely astounding. And she's their queen. And they are wanting to please her in every whichever way she wants. Be devoted to your God and angel. Pray to him. And let him help you grow on the path of sanctity. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.